I have on the screen here a tombstone that is likely in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, uh, just north of Lancaster. And a story is told of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution about 240 years ago. Peter Miller, his tombstone is here. And if you could read the uh, yellow box in English, this tombstone is written in German. And so there's a translation uh, in the English. Uh, and it would read, uh, here lies buried Peter Miller, born in um, Germany. And, and he comes over to the States. He was born in 1709. Comes over to the States in the year 1730. And a reformed uh, a preacher he was baptized in the congregation at Ephrata in the year 1735 and was called uh, Brother Jabez uh, because afterwards um, this, uh, their teacher, he was until his end. So he was there at this same church for about 60 years. He fell asleep on the 25th of September, 1796, soon after we became a country at the age of 86 and nine months. Story is told of this man. And he enjoyed a friendship with George Washington. In Ephrata, though, lived his um, nemesis, a man named Michael Whitman. It's said of him he was an evil-minded sort of man, someone that you would want to avoid. This man, Michael Whitman, according to history, owned two hotels and uh, who did all he could to oppose and humiliate the pastor, uh, Peter Miller. On one occasion, he hit him in the face. On another occasion, he spit in his face. While Michael Whitman was um, getting very friendly with the British during the American Revolution and was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Peter Miller finds out and in the winter travels with his cane over 60 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. That's like walking from here to Wells, Maine, okay, or Attleboro, Massachusetts, almost to Rhode Island in the winter. This is an older man now, and... He pleads with George Washington, his friend, and George Washington says, no, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. Peter responds, my friend, <laughs> he's the bitterest enemy that I have. I'll finish the story in the, in the conclusion. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Romans 5 tells us of the sure results of our sure salvation. And one of the results of our sure salvation is reconciliation with God. It's fascinating how God is putting Sunday school together with the morning message because Philemon ended uh, this morning's Sunday school with reconciliation of uh, a slave and a master, uh, a slave that had run away uh, with a master, and both slave and master were believers in the book of Philemon. Reconciliation with God. Who needs to be reconciled? Why do we need reconciliation? Well, verses 6 through 10 are going to tell us why we need reconciliation. So we're going to read these verses, Romans 5, 6 to 10, looking for yourself. 
okay? You're looking for humanity. As you read through these verses, we're going to pick out the description of why does God need to reconcile us to himself, and we're going to have uh, four points here on the screen that are going to uh, describe us, and it's not going to be a pleasant picture that we're going to see. So Romans 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with, I'm sorry, I'm in Ephesians. I'll get there with you. Like That is not what I studied. All right. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Why do we need reconciliation? If you were to talk to people that are at odds with each other, and you would say, you need to be reconciled to your spouse, to your parent, to your child, to your co-worker, to your extended family member, whoever it is that you're at odds with, we would plead with them, you need to be reconciled, and they would, they would probably come up with this question, why? I don't want to be reconciled to them. Hmm, okay. Well, the basis of all human reconciliation is that we were enemies apart from God. We have been reconciled to God. This is a sure result of a sure salvation. Why do we need reconciliation? Well, Ephesians uh, 2, 1 to 3, I just have verse 3 up here on the screen. We read Ephesians. It says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's verses 1 and 2. And then verse 3 of Ephesians 2 on the left side of the screen. All of us also among them at one time, fulfilling the cravings of the desires of our flesh and indulging its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of God's wrath, following Satan, disobeying God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. So why do we need to be reconciled? Well, we read verses 6 through 11, and we're going to go back now and look at verse 6 and see why do we need to be reconciled to God. What is the description of mankind that we see, all of us here in the same boat? Why do we need to be reconciled to God? Well, verse 6 starts with, while we were still weak. Another translation says, helpless. Helpless. Who needs help? Well, the helpless. There is no infant that can care for itself himself, herself, every single infant, usually the mother, usually grandmother, usually aunts, uncles, a father, realizes that a small child needs a lot of help, 
can't even change its own diaper, can't feed itself. It is virtually helpless. We were all there. Now, you can have pictures of yourself, and you, no matter how tall and big and strong you are today, there was a time that all of us were helpless, physically. But this isn't talking about physical helplessness. This is spiritual helplessness. We, while we were still weak, we were helpless. Why are we helpless? Well, this verse tells us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ah, we are helpless because we are ungodly. What's ungodliness? We mentioned ungodliness in the book of Titus, talking this morning about the opposite being godly. An ungodly person, how does an ungodly person live? They live in summarizing in very simple terms. An ungodly person lives without regard to God or his word. So it is natural for us to live an ungodly life if we don't need God's word. We don't think about God. We wake up thinking, what do I want to do today? Oh, I have to work. I should go to work. I go to work. After work, what do I want to do when I get home? Oh, yeah, I'd like to watch this. I'd like to eat this food. I'd like to uh, spend time with my dog or my family, or I'd like to uh, go see a, a game. We think, and this is how the ungodly live, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. This is how ungodly people live. If God exists, they think, he doesn't care about me, and I'm going to live my life, and I don't really care about him at all. This is how all of us lived at one point. See, in the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Those who are living without regard for Christ, God, or his word. Most of the world lives this way. It is very likely that most of your coworkers most of your extended family, most of your neighbors live this way. You and I used to live this way, without regard to God or his word. And because we're ungodly, we are weak, helpless spiritually. Okay, continuing in verse 7, what else do we see about us and true of all humanity? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Verse 8 as well. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The time is important here. While we were still weak, at the right time, while we were still sinners. Sinners. Sinners are, according to Romans 3.23, those who are falling short of the glory of God. We know what God expects of us, and we don't live up to God's expectation. We live without regard to God and His Word, and when confronted with God and His Word, we disobey it. 
We sin against God. We sin against our fellow brothers and sisters on this planet. We sin against other people. We're sinners. Pretty simple, isn't it? But yet pretty sad, pretty convicting, pretty apparent that we live, that we all used to live this way. So why do we need reconciliation? Because we're ungodly. And we're sinners. And then verse, uh, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now, again, a time reference here, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. See, the wrath of God is something that I think there's a hot sauce called this. But the wrath of God is way more, it's way bigger than a hot sauce. If you read Revelation, you will get the wrath of God in vivid detail. If you were Pharaoh and his army in the book of Exodus, you got God's wrath in a lot of detail. If you were Egyptian in the book of Exodus, your home your crops, your river, everything destroyed in the matter of a few months because God's wrath was poured out on Egypt. If you lived in Genesis 6 and you were outside of the ark, when the tidal wave came as the fountains of the deep opened and your town, village, you got to the highest mountain, it did not matter, that mountain was covered by at least 20 feet of water. You were under the wrath of God. We have so many stories of the wrath of God in the Bible. We cannot be ignorant of them. And yet, they're nothing compared to the book of Revelation. When God pours out his wrath in Revelation 19, and blood flows as high as the horse's bridle, five feet tall of a river of blood. And that blood is from humanity. It's a very sobering read. And we tell the world, God's wrath is coming to you if you don't repent. And they say, I don't care. I'm just going to go check my fantasy. I'm going to check my Instagram. I'm going to check my Facebook. I'm going to check my stocks. I'm going to check on my family. The wrath of God is no big deal. One day it will be a big deal. God in his mercy and his kindness is holding back his wrath because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we are ungodly. We are sinners. We deserve God's wrath. And according to Romans 1, God's wrath is he just lets you do what you want to do. If you want to be ungodly, if you want to sin, if you don't want God, you don't want Christ, you don't want anything to do with him, don't talk to me about that, I've heard people say. Okay. And then we tell them, you deserve 
God's wrath. They can't argue. It's clear here in Scripture. And then verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What do you see there at the beginning of verse 10? If while we were enemies. This word, a commentator said, is never passive. Like, God is our enemy. We are actively enemies of God. So what does an enemy do? Makes your life miserable. Actively so. And there could be family members, there could be people at your work, there could be neighbors, there could be people around you that they, whatever you want to be done, they want to do the opposite. Because they want to make your life miserable. And when they get a reaction from you, they smile. <laughs> yes, yes, I made them mad. Huh. So who are the enemies here? We are the enemies. Who are we enemies of? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Well, we're enemies of God then. Now, I don't know about you, but if your enemy is similar in strength to you, you'd say, eh, I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of her. But if you are the enemy of the almighty God, you lack wisdom. Why? Read the Bible and say, is it worth being an enemy of God if he can destroy the earth with a flood? Answer, no. Is it worth being Pharaoh at the edge of the Red Sea and send your 250,000 soldiers and troops into the Red Sea and watch the wall of water come crashing down on them and what you're left with is a visible image of what your army used to be, the greatest army in the world, now chariot pieces floating, weapons buried, and you go back to Egypt in shame. Zero army. It is not worth it to be an enemy of God. Scripture would say, your arm is too short to fight with God. We deserve God's wrath, and we are God's enemies. So I think Romans here, chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, lay a pretty good. Now, this is a logical friend. Any friend who tells you you're an enemy of God is being a good friend to you. Any friend who tells you, like the ungodly, eh, you can live without God. He is overrated. That is so 1960. You don't need God. Well, that's how the ungodly think. And, and Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Sinners miss God's mark. They live in their sin. They love sin. They invent sin. They try to get other people to join them sinning. And all the while, they are heaping up more and more of God's wrath on the day of judgment for themselves. Why? Because they are God's enemies. God is perfect. He is holy. Nothing wrong with God, ever. He never does anything wrong. 
And everyone on the planet who sins and is ungodly and deserves God's wrath is an enemy of God and walks away from God. And God stably stays in one spot. And we walk away from him. And when he starts judging us, we hold our hands up and blaspheme him. How foolish. How foolish it is to realize you don't need to be reconciled to this God. Now this picture here should strike fear in us. But Romans 5, if you read the whole passage, isn't meant to be fearful because this is a sure result of our sure salvation. This talks in terms of this is what you once were like while you were like this and once you did this and this is not a condemnation passage. So the rest of our time, we're going to look at what God has done to reconcile us. Now, you may think, as an enemy of God, and I'm talking to people that are enemies of God, that they should have a right to hate God. And that you may have talked to, and I have talked to people that seem to have a bitterness, an anger, a hatred for God where you are not, they forbid you to talk about God in their presence. They say, never bring that up again. They have cut me off in the middle of a gospel presentation where I've got to this part and told them <laughs> that you're under God's wrath. And I say, you know what? I think I'm done. But wait, there's more. This isn't the end of the story. You, I'm just, we just laid out why you need reconciliation because you're ungodly, you're a sinner, you deserve God's wrath and you're God's enemy. But this passage is for believers, is for us. And if you're here today feeling like you're under God's wrath, feeling like I might be God's enemy, I don't know, feeling like I'm still trapped in my sin or feeling like no matter how much I try, I'm still ungodly. This passage is a sure result of our sure salvation, and that sure result is we are reconciled to God. Verse 6 again. Now we're going to look for God. What is God Christ doing in this passage? We have a pretty accurate picture of what we were like. Now, while we were like that, God has acted on our behalf. Verse 6, while we were still weak, helpless, at the right time, the perfect time. Galatians 4, 4 says, at the fullness of time, Christ died for the ungodly. What a beautiful picture. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. I would like to think that I would die for most of you. I, but I'm not sure. I know for sure that I would die for her. I know for sure that I would die for my kids. But you would say the same thing if you were me, right? 
when it comes to someone on death row. Some people in this room, you'd say, yes, I would die for them, I would die for them. Eh, I'm not sure, I don't even know them, probably not. But how about someone on death row? Convicted murderer. He's awaiting punishment, and that punishment could be the death penalty. And you go, if you could, into the prison and say, can I take his place? How many people would do that if they could? And the chances are, this passage says, scarcely. Rarely is this going to happen. Scarcely for a righteous one would someone die. And perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But it's not righteous people that Christ dies for. It is ungodly, weak Sinners that Christ dies for. His enemies. Oh, man. This is not a flattering picture up here of where we all were. And while we were still there is when Christ comes. How did God reconcile us? 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not accounting their offenses to them, and has put us, put in us the word of reconciliation. So we have been reconciled to God, and he is using us to help other people to be reconciled to God. Christ and the Father here look so, so beautiful compared to the ugly picture of our sin and ungodliness. Why does God send Christ? Verse 8 is so clear. Why does God the Father send his Son to die for sinners? Short answer. God loves. That's it. The world cannot say that God is a mean God because Christ has come. Christ came willingly. If you read Luke 9 and the rest of the Gospel of Luke, Christ sets his face to go to Jerusalem and will not be talked out of going to the cross. Why? Because he knows the plan of the Father. He knows why he is on the earth. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it was hardest for Christ, and his disciples are asleep, and he says, let this cup pass from me. You know what that cup was? The cup of God's wrath. Deserving God's wrath. All of humanity deserves God's wrath. And Christ goes to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it down to the dregs, to the very bottom. The cup is completely empty. Christ has paid for all of our sins on the cross. He bore all of God's wrath for you and I. He lovingly sent his son to die for us. 
God is love. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the God who is the creator is the God who loves his creation. Allah is not a God of love. Allah is not God. A loving God does not tell us to go kill people. The true God is a God of love. He's a God rich in mercy. We saw it in Joel chapter 2. You see it in the book of Jonah. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Anyone who will turn from their sin, no matter how wicked, like the Ninevites, God will spare them. No matter how far from God, like Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians, and yet forgiven when they repent. How does God reconcile us? Well, he lovingly sent his son to die for us. Such a beautiful verse. In the Romans road, we pull verse 8 out, and in the context, it's even more beautiful than just pulling it out for itself. God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he allows us in our sin, sometimes for years and decades, to reject him, to live as his enemy until the lights are on and we turn from our sin and we trust Christ alone and we're reconciled to God. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified or having been justified by his blood. So Christ dies for us. You see in verse 6, Christ dies for the ungodly. In verse 8, Christ died for us. How did he die? He shed his blood. We know he shed his blood on the cross. So we've been justified. We've been raid right with God by Christ's blood. Much more shall we be saved by him. Even more than just, just justified, just right with God. We are saved by him, by Christ, from the wrath of God. So we talk about salvation. We talk about being saved. What does that mean? According to verse 9, who are we saved from? We're saved from God. This is how we share the gospel. We, and our, we are enemies of God. We deserve God's wrath. So we are saved, look at verse 9 again, saved by Christ from the wrath of God. When we sang in Christ alone, the wrath of God is satisfied. It's a very good phrase. And many liberal churches, churches that don't preach the gospel, want to sing that song and want to take that phrase out. And the songwriter said, no, you can't take that phrase out because you changed. They wanted to say the love of God is magnified. No, there's more than just God's love being displayed on the cross. The wrath of God is satisfied. The wrath of God toward disturbing sinners. It's like a fire, consuming fire that's coming toward all sinners, and Christ stands in the way and extinguishes the flames. That's the word propitiation. Christ extinguishes the wrath of God that we deserved. And how does he do that? It says here, with his blood. Obedient, willing sacrifice 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But with the shedding of blood, 100% forgiveness of sin. See, here's how God reconciles us. He justly allowed his son's blood to turn away his wrath. So when we talk about salvation, you are saved from God's wrath. You're a sinner, yes, and you deserve God's wrath because of your sin, but you are saved from God's wrath. Salvation is from God, and it's also to God. You can see this passage so focuses us not on ourselves, because we don't look good here. We don't look good in any passage of Scripture. But God looks perfect here. Perfect justice. Perfect love. Perfect salvation. This is why when God says in Romans 4, put your faith and trust in me, in me alone. Don't trust yourself. It worked for Abraham. It worked for everybody in the Old Testament who trusted in a Messiah who is going to come take away their sin. And it works for all of us in the New Testament who look back to Christ and say, Christ paid for all of my sin. And God in his holiness and justice allowed his son's blood to turn away his wrath. So you and I are saved from God. And we were his enemies. There are enemies today that we watch in the news. There are good guys and bad guys. And depending on your worldview, you can think that someone is an enemy and someone is, uh, is good. And sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we get it right. But when it comes to this passage of Scripture, there is no who's, who's right, who's wrong. It's clear. God is right. We are wrong. We deserved his wrath. And we won't have his wrath because of the blood of of his son and we are saved by christ from the wrath of god verse 10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more here's again another much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life it's not just we escape god's wrath We are a child of the God who we were once his enemy. We sing it, Jesus, thank you. Once his enemy, now seated at his table. And we are only at God's table because of the work of Christ. No one gets there on his own effort, as Titus 3.5 says. It's not works of righteousness that we're saved. God, in his justice and his mercy and his kindness, had this plan of salvation from Genesis 3.15 on. As Adam and Eve sinned, God promised that a seed of the woman was going to come and crush the head of the, of the serpent, crush Satan's head. And Christ accomplished that on the cross. When he cried out, it is finished, Satan's head was crushed. Our sin paid for. God's wrath completely 
overtaken by Christ. Christ doesn't lay down his life as a victim. He cries out in the very last thing, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is restored, he is reconciled to his Father before he breathes his last. And sin doesn't kill Jesus. Jesus lays down his life. Because only God can decide when God lays down his life. This is how God reconciled us. He sent Christ to the cross. Christ willingly went, took all of the wrath of God on the cross. It was dark that day. Christ cries out, uh, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Christ was bearing our sin. And we are reconciled. It doesn't say we are being reconciled, as if if salvation is a process. And Catholics get salvation wrong because they look at salvation as a process. And salvation is not a process. From Romans 4 and Romans 5, he uses definitive language like, you have been reconciled. Since you have been reconciled. Having been reconciled. Like, you, you are right with God if you trusted in Christ alone. And these are the sure results of your salvation. You are reconciled to God. And finally, verse 11. More than that, he just keeps adding more and more of the benefits of being reconciled to God. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved by the life of Christ. In verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember what he was talking about rejoicing earlier in this passage. What was he talking about rejoicing? Rejoicing in suffering. Like, how can you rejoice in suffering? That's impossible. Not for the Christian. Why? Because we have a sure salvation. And our sure salvation is that we are reconciled to the giver of life who gave us life. He puts us in his family. And we can rejoice in our salvation. So our circumstances, even though if they're suffering, don't have to consume us because our salvation is secure. But trust me, whenever you, you and I go through suffering, what's the first thing we doubt? God's goodness and our salvation. Like, oh, man. If that's not true for you, it was true for me. Am I really saved? Can I lose my salvation? If your salvation is dependent on you and your good works, yes, you can lose it. But if it's a dependent on God, according to Romans 5, I don't see how you can lose it. Because he sent his son to die for us. He allows his son, blood, to turn away wrath. And much more than that, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we have this position. We are in God. We are in Christ. God talks about uh, the surety of our salvation as Christ is on earth. In John 10, 27 to 29, he says, We are in Christ. We are in the Father. No one takes us out of God's hand. And God is greater than all. Wow, a pretty secure position. A sure salvation. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are reconciled to that God, saved by the life of Christ. And more than that, we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? That's through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received 
reconciliation. So the words here are important. Received. That means someone has given to us. We didn't earn this. We didn't buy this. We didn't work for this. We received it. This is gift language. God gave us the gift of salvation, saving us from his wrath. Why? Because the son came. Why did the son come? Because God loves us. He, Christ, he, the Father, surely expects us to rejoice in our position in him and in Christ. And this is why we have that hope, that rejoicing in suffering, the peace with God, everything else at the beginning of chapter 5, this is why it makes sense. This is what God has done to rescue us, and this is why we can rejoice even in suffering. Because our salvation is secure. He surely expects us to rejoice. Because our position is secure. Because in Christ, through Christ, we have now received reconciliation. And it's only Christ. We get no credit for our salvation. Well, I came here and I learned and I I figured this out. No one gets to be a Christian by figuring it out. We can't figure it out. You know why? Because of verse 6. We're weak. We're helpless. Can't figure it out. God has figured it out, though. And I've talked to a few people that refuse to trust Christ alone because they are trusting in their own understanding. They're trying to figure it out. And I say, you may think it's too simple, but you're making it too hard. It is simple. Christ did everything. Trust him alone. So how do we apply this? We are reconciled in one body to God, the body of Christ. The one body to God through the cross. So based on our passage of scripture today, will you humbly thank God for his love and justice? All of this requires humility because it didn't look good in that first slide that I showed you. Sinners, deserving God's wrath, ungodly. Salvation is designed to humble us. And it's designed to keep us humble as we have good theology. No Christian can proudly say, I am not going to obey God's word. Whoa, 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 whoa. Go back to your salvation. You are saved when you humbled yourself. So humbly thank God for his love and his justice. We can see his love and justice, the perfect blend of it at the cross. Second, humbly obey and serve the God who reconciled you to himself. Enemies of God don't want to serve God. The world wants to do their own thing. They want to be activists to do all their causes. And we're saying, wait, we got a bigger cause than all these different things they're activating over. And we're going to just humbly obey and serve the God who reconciled us to himself. And then finally, humbly boast. That's the word rejoice here. Boast or rejoice in your secure position. And you can go to work tomorrow, even if it's suffering to go to work. And you can be rejoicing. Why? Because you're secure. Why are you secure? Because of Christ. Why did Christ come? Because God loves us. You're secure. 
in your position. We sing the song, He Will Hold Us Fast. And that is so true. If our salvation depended on us keeping it, we would all lose it. But it's depending on the work, the finished work of Christ and the justice and love of the Father. So I told you I'd finish the story. As Peter Miller shows up at the camp at George Washington at Valley Forge, and George Washington says, I can't grant you the life of your friend. And Peter says, my friend? He's the worst enemy that I have. What? Cries Washington. You've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy. That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. As the story goes, it is supposed to be the day of the execution by hanging. And Peter, with a paper in his hand of pardon from General Washington, walks another 15 miles to the place of the execution. While he is arrives, Whitman, known for his evil, was being carried to the scaffold, who, seeing Miller in the crowd, remarked, There's old Peter Miller. He has walked all the way from Ephrata to have his revenge gratified today, seeing me hung. Miller showed the pardon. He was released. And the two embraced. Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back home to Ephrata, no longer an enemy, but a friend. What would cause a Christian to walk 75 miles to save the life of his enemy? Because he knows the God who saved his life. Let's pray. Our Father, we only know you because we know Christ. And we only know you because Christ has come obediently to take our place on the cross. Since we have been reconciled to you, we humbly rejoice in our position and our only boast is the cross. We're so thankful that once we were your enemy, now we are your friend. Now we're in your family. We're heirs. Thank you so much for your love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to be humbled today. I pray for those here today who have re resisted you. They haven't realized their sin is that bad. Help them to realize that they deserve your wrath. Help them to repent of all of their sin. Help them to turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone as the full payment for their sin. I pray for Christians here today who refuse to love one another. We can't say that we love you and hate our brother. So I pray that you would help us to love one another because you have loved us. And it's so clear today that you have loved us. Help us to be known for our love for one another. And by that, know that we are Christ's disciples. Thank you for the security of our salvation. Give us the um, humility we need to walk 
and obedience to serve you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.